You are listening to a podcast from Essendon Presbyterian Church in Melbourne, recorded 6pm on April 16, 2023, presented by Rev. Chris Duke. Um, we're going to read now from John chapter 17. We're going to um, pick it up at verse 20 and read the next six verses. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given to me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. May the Lord bless to us the reading of his word. Would you pray with me again? Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage from the Gospel of John. We ask, Lord, that you'll give us a clearer understanding of what it's saying, and bless us and enable us, Lord, uh, to um, apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we come to uh, John chapter 17, verses uh, 20 to 26, what we find here is that Jesus is praying for all believers, which includes us today. So this prayer, some 2,000 years ago, that Jesus prayed the night before he was crucified, he was praying for his disciples of that time and he's also praying for his disciples in all time. You see, this prayer in chapter 17 is known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And we can see the love of Jesus personified. You can see Jesus' love in action right here. Here we find the Saviour's love for us, a love which none of us deserve nor have ever deserved. And we're introduced to two things. Jesus' love for his own and the pattern of his intercession for believers. It's here that we get a glimpse of how he intercedes for us. Because in John chapter 17, this is not the end of Jesus' care for his followers, but rather it's the initiation of it. Here we find that he continually cares for us. And the Bible tells us he intercedes, that he mediates and he prays for us before Jesus ascends into heaven. But here Jesus gives us a preview, if you like, of how he intercedes how he mediates and how he prays for us, recorded by the Apostle John. Now, in the first five verses, 
of this chapter, Jesus actually has prayed for himself. He's prayed for himself because he knows what is before him. This is before the cross, moments before the cross. So that his glory may be realised for the sake of us. And then in verses 16 to 19, he prays for his disciples, the 11 apostles. And now in verses 20 to 26, he begins to pray specifically for all believers in all of time. He gathers up all the believers who will ever be saved in all the ages to come and he prays for them. In verse 20 he says, my prayer is not for them alone. Now this is interesting because it's a negative statement. There are three things in this chapter that Jesus doesn't pray for. First, in verse 9, I'm not praying for the world. We haven't read that today. Secondly, in verse 15, we haven't read this verse today, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world when he's praying for the disciples. The removal of the believer from the world isn't what Jesus prays for. He wants us here. He wants us involved. He wants us in the action. And then in verse 20, there's a third negative. My prayer is not for them alone. My prayer isn't just for these disciples alone. Because Jesus is reaching out in his prayer beyond his disciples, beyond these 11 remaining apostles. Because at this stage, Judas has already betrayed him or is about to betray him. So verse 20 says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Whose message? And you see, in this statement, we see Jesus in his sovereign, omnipotent eye and in his omniscience. And he scans the centuries ahead of him and he presses his loving heart for all true believers, all true followers down through the centuries whose names he already knows that have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. Jesus knew your name. Do you realise that you appear in the 17th chapter of John right here now? If you're a Christian, that is. If you're a follower, if you have faith in Christ, Jesus isn't praying nebulously, generally, or non-specifically. He's praying for all who shall believe. And he knows exactly who they are by name. And Jesus is absolutely specific. And here he doesn't pray for those who will not believe in him. That's interesting. He prays for those who shall believe and he knows them by name. Remember this because it's amazing, friends. Jesus was actually praying for you nearly 2,000 years ago. And this shows us the depth of his love in his intercession, that he prayed for us even before, well before we were born. And in verse 20, Jesus qualifies those for whom he prays. I pray also for those who will believe in me. This is an indication of a true believer. A true Christian is one 
who believes in Christ. Now, what do I mean by this statement? In Acts 16, verse 31, the word says this, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. God wants faith. God doesn't want your works or your religion or even your piety in being super religious, but God does want your faith commitment to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only kind of person who will ever know God, whoever knows Christ, and that's the only person for whom Jesus intercedes. To be part of, the, of Jesus' intercessory work, you must believe in him. And Jesus is saying, I'm praying for all those who believe in me. He knows every one of us. He knows every one of everyone in the world today who believes in him. But note this beautiful thought. How is it that they're going to believe? How is it that they're going to believe? When Jesus is praying this prayer, his disciples are gathered around him and they can hear what he's saying. They've heard all of Jesus' prayer so far and now he says, I pray for them also who will believe in me through their message. Whose message? Whose word? The word of the 11 apostles that are with him. Just think of the, the apostles at this moment and their reaction when they heard Jesus praying for us. At this moment, these disciples, they were a motley mob at that moment. They were weak and they were frail. They were just like you and I. And their faith was small. But now Jesus' prayer is exuding, exuding wonderful confidence in the disciples. He's saying that the gospel word preached by the apostles, that believers in all generations will believe. And this is a confidence statement, is it not? It isn't wishful thinking. Jesus knew everything and he knew that his disciples were faithless and weak at that moment, that they were about to scatter when he was crucified, and they did. Nevertheless, through them, all who ever believe will believe because of their message. You might think that this doesn't apply to myself because I wasn't led to the Lord by an apostle. Friend, yes, you were. Before the apostles died, not only did they preach and teach and found the church, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote the New Testament. And it doesn't matter whether it's directly from the reading of scripture or from somebody sharing you the principles of the gospel, your salvation goes right back to an apostolic origin. The disciples of Jesus Christ in those early years had no idea of what was going to happen. That now, nearly 2,000 years later, the church would grow through their word to the extent it has today. Romans 10 verse 18 reminds us, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. And so it is that salvation, whether it was in the first century or whether it's when somebody picks up the Bible 
and reads the word and then is saved because of that, it all comes back to an apostolic gospel committed to these faithful men by the Holy Spirit. And so salvation comes today the same as it did then through the message of the apostles. Romans 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. Now that's a true principle. Faith does not... Faith comes by hearing, okay? And hearing by the word of God, but the Greek here says this. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by a speech about Jesus Christ. That's what the Greek actually says. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by a speech about Jesus Christ. It's the apostolic preaching of Christ that brings faith, whether from someone preaching from a pulpit like I'm doing now or from someone reading the word of God or sharing it on a one-on-one basis or in a small group, but its origin goes back to a speech about Jesus Christ, delivered at one time or another by an early apostle or disciple. And so you and I merely had the privilege of taking the gospel committed to the apostles by the Holy Spirit and handing it to people today. The salvation of the entire church of Jesus Christ goes directly or indirectly right back to those men. Jesus knew that these few failing scattered sheep would soon be the agents of reaching the millions of believers who had come to Christ throughout the ages to come. Jesus even knew that they would abandon him. But it never broke his confidence because his omniscience overruled that. And they started the chain of witnesses of which you and I are mere products. So Jesus prays for them, for, he prays then for his own, those who will be saved by believing in the gospel. That's why you can't accept any other way of salvation because there isn't any other way. So Jesus in John 17 is praying for us. Friends, I hope that you're excited about that. Okay? That you're excited about that. And you know when Jesus went to the cross, in effect he said to the Father, I want you to hold them. I want you to hold them. He's thinking of us. I want you to hold them. I want you to protect them while I go to the cross to bear their sin, to bear your sin. Christ knew that the gospel would prevail, the good news would prevail, despite the world's hatred and despite the antagonism of Satan, the evil one. He knew that in the first generation of Christians would not only preach faithfully, but under the Spirit's control would write down the New Testament, which we've read a part of tonight. So he prayed for us. Remember in Genesis... In Genesis, there's, there's a story of Esau. And Esau had a complaint because he was tricked by Jacob, his brother, out of his birthright. He snuck in and he got the blessing of his father. And when Esau came, it was too late because the father only had one blessing. But I want you to know that you weren't born too late to receive the blessing because Jesus has prayed for you. Jesus has prayed for you that you would receive all that the Father had to give you. 
before you were ever born. This indeed is wonderful news, friends. Now, what does he pray? He only prays for one thing, friends. If Jesus is going to pray for every Christian in every age, for all the centuries to come, he's only going to ask one thing. Now, you'd think that if one thing would be fairly important, wouldn't you? If he's only going to ask one thing. Jesus only prays for one thing while we're here on earth. In verse 21, he prays that all of them may be one. That all of them may be one. That's all he prayed for. Jesus prays for oneness. We might call that unity. So that what is meant by this little statement about oneness, if we had oneness, then the role of preachers, friends, would be easier. <laughs> to be one is a byproduct of holiness and love. If you have holiness and love, you wouldn't have to preach on anything else. So when Jesus prayed, he was very, very specific. He's talking about the oneness of holiness, that they be one in a holy separation away from a defiled world. Because every time a, a Christian falls into worldliness and worldly patterns, he or she destroys that oneness. Jesus told his disciples that they were to be different. You ought to be set apart, to be separate and one in holiness. And if we're one in holiness, there will be love between you. There will be caring and there will be humility and all these things will revolve around oneness. Now, of course, he's talking about a spiritual oneness here. What Jesus has in mind is the oneness of a holy life set against the defilement of an unholy world. Christians collectively need to be one in holiness so that we have a total testimony. How many times have you heard people knocking Christians due to their seemingly unholy lifestyle? And sadly today, even the church has different views on what the scripture has to say about holiness. But the scripture is very clear, it's just that the minds of people have gone astray. And Jesus says, if you were only one, that you were unified holiness, where the world could look at you and they would be able to say that you are different because your faith has actually changed you. And because it's changed you, then it must be real. But sadly, sadly, the world looks today and it's difficult to recognise genuine Christianity. Apart from Jesus Christ, the world is a shattered, broken, ruined disunity. In Christ we become one. The only problem is we don't always manifest that oneness in our practice, do we? We know that positionally unity is already ours. 
We are one in Christ because of salvation. We are one in the, in the body, but that's a positional oneness. What Christ wants is that experiential oneness where our position becomes our practice. In Ephesians 2 verse 14, we find positional oneness. Now you have to understand the difference between position and practice. Your position is what you are in Christ. Your practice is how you act. And sometimes you don't act like you're supposed to. Verse 14 of Ephesians 2, 14, it says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. That's our position. Jew and Gentile have been made one. Christ has made believers one in Christ. So positionally, we are one. In Ephesians 4, verses 4 to 5, it says, One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Positionally, we are one. We all belong to Jesus. We all belong to the body. We've all been born again, if we do. We're all one. But we don't like, act like it sometimes. And the practical oneness comes in Ephesians 4, verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. He gave some apostles, some prophets, and then he gave some evangelists and some teaching pastors. Now the Lord gives to the church evangelists and teaching pastors today. I would argue that apostles and prophets, of course, have passed from the scene. Today we have evangelists and teaching pastors. And these folks are given to the church to bring the positional oneness into practice. To equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Did you know that your pastor isn't supposed to do the work of the ministry? He's supposed to perfect the saints. And all the saints are supposed to do the work of the ministry. That's what it says. All right, you might ask, for what reason? Until we all reach unity in the faith. You might say, wait a minute, I thought we were already one. We are positionally. What he's talking about here concerns your practice. You are one, but he says, I'm going to give you all the basics and all the things you need to become one visibly before a watching world. Because we're one in Christ, but we don't act like it. Jesus prays that we will be one. Unfortunately, there can be divisions. Christians can bicker with each other. This little group gets over here and this little group gets over there and wants to do uh, things his way or their way and this little group gets up over there and wants it another way. And all of a sudden there's division and there's carnality and strife and dissension. And that's all part of the devil's plan to divide the body. Because Jesus prayed that we'd be one. If you really care for somebody, if you really do love your neighbour, you won't have that problem. 
And if you have the same care for everybody, you'll never have that problem. Do you know what causes friction? What causes clicks and division? When somebody cares about somebody else more than they care about another person. But if you have the same care for everybody and the same love for everybody, there won't be any room for dividing it. But as long as you have an open heart to care for everybody and anybody in the body of Christ, the same as you care for everybody else, where's division going to get in? Or where's it going to come from? There can't be any division. And if one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member is honoured, we all rejoice. This is oneness. This is the practical oneness that Jesus prays for at this moment, as we read about it in chapter 17 of John. He's not talking about an outward oneness or an ecumenical unity or an organisational oneness. He's not talking about administrative oneness or ecclesiastical unity. He's talking about an inner unity. In verse 21 it says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. The same kind of oneness that the Father and the Son experience. The unity between the Father and the Son. Now that's a heavy thought. And, it's something, and it's, it is something that's difficult for us to comprehend. How can we be one in the same sense that the Father and God the Son are one? We're certainly not in divine essence. We can't be one like the Trinity. But in a, in a certain manner, we can. There's got to be a meaning here. He's talking about something that is inner and something that is spiritual. Jesus wants from us a unity that in some sense is similar to his unity with the Father. And it must transcend the physical, the earthly, and it must be something divine. Now, of course, every congregation isn't going to organise itself in the same way. And we know that churches are different. We also realise that believers are going to naturally gravitate to certain kinds of ministries and certain other kinds of believers for their fellowship. And believers will never all worship God in the same forms and in the same patterns. But what Jesus is talking about here is a unity that has nothing to do with form or pattern. It's a spiritual oneness that transcends that. And sadly, the cause of Christian oneness through history has been injured, violated and hindered. And you know why? Because people have consistently, consistently loved their own way more than they've loved each other. They become selfish in either loving themselves or their little organisation more than they love others. And of course, that causes division. Jesus wants a oneness of love possible only in holiness. The oneness he wants is a holy oneness. A oneness where we're all separate from the world that's true with the Father and true with the Son. These are the two things that are the keys to the oneness of the Father and the Son.
Does the father love the son? Does the son love the father? In an infinite capacity, how would you answer that? Yes, a resounding yes. Are both of them separate from sin? Yes. And thus the kind of oneness similar to the Father and the Son is a oneness of holiness and love, separate from sin and in love with each other. That's what Jesus prayed for. And if you violate either, you will automatically violate both. If you're not separate from the world, if you're not separate from the sin in the world, and if you don't have love for all your brothers and sisters in Christ, then you're destroying the oneness for which Jesus prayed. Now, this is a spiritual, loving, holy oneness. And whether there's division, it's a manifestation of two things. It's a manifestation of unholiness. It's a manifestation of sin. Call it what you want. And secondly, it's a manifestation of a lack of love. Do you want that kind of oneness? Friends, we need to be concerned about becoming more like Christ. A.W. Tozer gives a great illustration. If you have to tune 400 pianos and you try going from one of them to each other, back and forth, guess what will happen? You'll end up in a mess. You see, but if you, only, but if you have one tuning fork, and of course you have to be very good at this, you have to have a good ear, then you just tune them all to the one tuning fork. Then you'll, or, then you'll automatically be able to tune each one correctly. Friends, we all need to get plugged into being tuned by the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be tuned to be more like Jesus Christ. We're one in the body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one spirit, one body. Now, why should we be one? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus came so that people might believe in him. Do you think Jesus really wants the world to believe? Yes, yes. Do you care that he wants the world to believe? I hope you do. It is oneness that makes the world believe. And what must the world believe? They must believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And right here, then, is the salvation gospel. It's in a nutshell. People, in order to believe, must believe God and believe in Jesus' righteous act when he died on the cross and he rose again. We celebrated this last weekend, but we celebrated every Lord's Day. Jesus only asked one thing, and he said on the basis of that one thing, the world will believe. And if you're truly a Christian, your prayer should be Christ's prayer that the world may believe because it can observe a holy, a loving, a selfless unity in our churches. Friends, Jesus prays for all believers to be one 
so the world will see that they're real followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, we thank you for this reminder from our wonderful Lord Jesus Christ that he prayed for us well before we were born, but he was thinking of us when he prayed this prayer that we read about in the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Help us to understand it more fully as we read it, as we meditate on it, and Lord, apply to our lives. Help us to be the people that you would have us be in the Lord Jesus Christ. May there be a oneness and unity in the spirit, Lord, in our love for one another and our love for you. May that be the experience in our church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.